Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Lauren McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. Often in these introductions, I've spoken about how I am seeking to learn about how cultural creatives have followed their passions in order to mold their ideal lives and careers. I've always been interested in the twists and turns life takes. As children, we are fed a fantasy that you choose one career and passion as a child, study it, and then work at it till you die. Rarely do the experience of my interviewees or friends match that idea of a single path. I don't think this is a negative at all. In fact, the veers off course and changes of mind seem to be just as valuable as the straight road. Last month, I was lucky enough to visit illustrator Mel Odom in his Upper West Side home. I first came across his work years ago in the old issues of Viva magazine I collect. Published from 1973 to 1980 by Penthouse's Bob Guccione and edited by his wife, Kathy Keaton, Viva was an intelligent woman's magazine with a very erotic bent. Fashion editorials followed nude centerfolds, intelligent articles were accompanied by innovative, erotically charged illustrations. From my first glance, I found Odom's Art Deco-tinged drawings to be utterly captivating and totally unique. From a small town in North Carolina, Mel started to draw as a young child before going on to study fashion illustration at College of Virginia. He ended up in NYC in the late 1970s, where his intelligent way of processing the subject of an article into a brilliantly beautiful illustration filled with luminously beautiful men and women quickly gained him attention in the magazine and book publishing worlds. The erotic bent of his drawings for Viva paved the way for his work with the gay men's magazine Blue Boy, as well as for Playboy, who he had a close working relationship with for almost 20 years. Throughout the harrowing AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s, with the near constant loss of friends and lovers, Autumn continued his, work, his art as a method of working through his pain and that of his whole community. In the late 1990s, his career reared onto a new path when Odom became intrigued by the idea of uniting two of his great loves, dolls and old Hollywood movies, through developing a fashion doll who was a classic starlet with a full backstory and a wardrobe full of books based on her film roles. Taking several years for him to develop, Jean Marshall appeared in 1995 and took the toy market by storm. For the last few years, he has focused his attention on painting. Still creatively inspired and motivated, Jeff Mel was his joy to speak with. We covered everything from his techniques and inspirations to the immense sorrows and great loves of his life. If you were interested in art, New York in the 1970s and 80s, and the gay experience during the early years of AIDS, I believe you will find this interview immensely interesting. Warm and so full of light, Mel is a true Southern gentleman and a truly wonderful human. Head to ladyworld.tv to see a slideshow I put together of artwork and another of Jean Marshall to read a short biography of him and to sign up for our newsletter. Enjoy. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down and talk with me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of your work. Oh, as, thank you. Thank as you. As I told you, um, I, I think I first got introduced to it because I, I'm, I collect Viva magazine. And my first gig. I would find the, your illustrations and be like, oh my god, and I'd scan them. And I had this blog like 10 years ago that I would put you know, random things up on it. And I definitely put some of yours up. But I was just like, you know, so interested. And then when I found your site again, and then recently your Instagram, I was like, I should just get in touch with it. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, and yeah, it was very exciting. Viva was the very first magazine I worked for. Wow. I actually came to New York on, for a weekend to visit friends and got an agent mm -hmm. that weekend, which you could do back then. That's amazing, yeah. Cole called her on the phone. She's in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. She says, come down and show me your drawings. I go down, she says, okay, I'll be your agent. We'll see how this goes. And um, 
like I went back to Richmond after the weekend and about a week later I got a call from her saying Viva magazine it's a new magazine wants you to do an erotic fantasy drawing for them and I'm like okay sure I packed up and moved to New York the next week and did the drawing here actually Fantastic. Like here at this apartment? No, no, in an apartment. I moved in with a girlfriend since college and her roommate, who was a fashion model, and um, did the drawing on a drawing board in my lap in bed. They loved it, and they kept hiring me. Like for several years, mm -hmm. I worked for them. And, you know, some, some, sometimes they say, oh, you know, no penises, and then other times they say, oh, that's fine. You know, they, they were trying to find their audience yeah. and what constituted their brand of sexual liberation, which was what this was about, being a woman's sexy magazine. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really interesting working for them. It really was. I loved it. And, they, and I did a lot of real good work for them, I thought, too. Did you know Kathy at all? Only through the magazine. Okay. And then I met her through... And you know, in the office, it was uh, just a, it was a lovely uh, collaboration. I, I, it paid my bills. That's what it did, which was nice. Like I think they're so beautiful. Those ones. I mean, they totally grabbed my attention. You know. Well, that was the thing. Else. To make them something that would stop people turning pages. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that's the goal. Like with a book cover, you want to make it something that they pick it up. Yeah. And you know, it's like, please don't squeeze the Charmin. You know, once it's in their hand, you, you got them. Yeah. Were you interested in art and drawing for as long as you can remember? Yeah, I have drawings to go back to when I was four. And my mother was so smart and so kind. She saved and dated them. And when I was about seven, I started taking drawing lessons from a lady in, in town. So they were obviously were supportive. Yeah. You know, I, it, it, it took being an adult to really appreciate the fact that they were willing to pay, you know, I don't know how much it was per week for their seven-year-old to go draw with a teacher. I th think a part of it was that I drew a lot at home when nobody was telling me to. You know, it just was something I loved. Yeah. And I was quiet and out of the way when I was doing that. And you know, for a mother, that's, Heaven. Yeah, that's the, the goal. Yeah, that's the, dream, the goal. The that's the dream goal. You've got one kid who entertains himself. You sit him at a table, pencils and you know crayons and paper, and he will do that for hours and not bother anybody. So um, it was it was really it was a good arrangement for both of us. What did you see in your world that like inspired you? Like, were there people, like, artists you saw that you were? No, no, no. This was a little tobacco town. My my dad had a tobacco and peanuts farm. Mm -hmm out of town, and we lived in town, and um, I saw magazines and comic books, and I saw Silly Symphony cartoons on the Mickey Mouse show every mm -hmm. afternoon, and they were so beautifully drawn. I mean, I still look at them and marvel at how beautifully drawn they are, and I know that a lot of my earliest drawings reflect Disney cartoons. Mm -hmm. I can see where they came from. There's a, I did several drawings of mermaids, and I saw a cartoon, a silly symphony a few years ago called King Neptune, and there they were. And it was so shocking. It was like seeing old friends that I hadn't seen mm -hmm. in 50 years. 
it was thrilling too, and I realized how much they had in, yeah. impacted on me, and how and how beautiful I thought they were, and how those cartoons sort of were really nourishment for any kid's fantasy life, you know, fairies and mermaids and you know, ghosts and skeletons and stuff. It was great. I love the there's the silly symphonies of like the candy parade. <gasps> oh gosh, yes. And the cookie was, carnival. Yeah, the cookie carnival. That's the one I think. Oh, it was, I was oh obsessed with God. it as a child. Oh my God, I fell in love with that. I, I actually once, I, I learned about YouTube years ago, and I realized you could see them. Mm -hmm. I just went back and I watched all of them. And they had not lost any of their impact. They are so beautiful and so obviously come from a very passionate place of whoever created them. I loved them, and they were a big influence on me. And ads, you know, back in the 50s, for some reason, there were a lot of mermaids in ads selling jewelry and cosmetics and stuff, and of course that was just further proof that mermaids were real, so I drew mermaids a lot. I have a bunch of mermaids, a lot of, uh, it's funny, a lot of gay men draw mermaids. For some reason they connect to that, that otherworldliness. Mm -hmm. What was your town like that you grew up in? Have you ever seen the Andy Griffith show set yeah. in Mayberry? Mm -hmm. Very like that. My dad was the mailman, as well as having the farm. We lived, from my bedroom windows, I could see both my high school and my grammar school. Literally, three blocks to grammar school and a block to high school. And I just happened to grow up on Church Street, which was one of the oldest streets. And things developed around the old streets. You know, the next Church Street and then Main Street were the two oldest streets, I believe. And I lived on Church Street. So it was a, it was a lovely little, primarily my neighborhood was post-war. Mm -hmm. A lot of little cottages built on GI Bills and, you know, and people returning home. Everybody had kids. Um, lovely lawns, trees, the woods were two blocks away. And um, it, was, it, was, it was really in many ways a wonderful, wonderful childhood because back then, because all the families were approximately in the same stage of their families, you know, you didn't get away with anything. If you did something really bad, somebody would have seen you and called your mother by the time you got home. So, um, and if you drove in traffic in front of a car, you know, I mean, it was, and it sounds kind of um, oppressive, but it wasn't. It was, it was a, a lovely um, neighborhood, lovely little town, Christmas parade. You know, my dad was active in the Baptist church. I spent a lot of time in church. That would be the one thing I would change if I could, would be spend a little less time in church. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, I didn't question it because I was, you know, kid and that's what your parents tell you you do so I, I did it but it was nice it was nice and um, we would have big snows in the winter and really? yeah they don't do they don't have them anymore down there because of the weather change yeah. we would have big big snows and sleigh riding and um, in many ways it was an idyllic childhood and I had a active fantasy life going and as well as friends so I was a busy kid I mean I, I drew in school it was my identity from the beginning. Like, oh, he's the kid who can draw. We'll get him to do the bulletin board. Mm -hmm. I, I, I doubt if I would have passed all my subjects if I hadn't been able to do extra credit <laughs> for, with bulletin boards and drawings and posters and stuff. 
Did you always know you were gay? You know, I think I did. Mm -hmm. I think I did. I don't ever remember it being a, a realization. Mm -hmm. I think it was just always so inherent in who I was that I didn't think anything of it until I realized, oh, other people aren't like this. And I was lucky in that I was a well-socialized kid, so I had a lot of friends. I, it wasn't like I was alienated, no, or an outcast. I had, in fact, I had girlfriends that I would play dolls and paper dolls with, and then I had guy friends that I would go to the woods and blow up stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, it was really, yeah. like, best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. I got to be, you know, a classic little southern sissy, and I also got to, my two closest guy friends were the two Hellraisers in the neighborhood, the Hill Brothers. And they were my best friends. So it, I really managed to sort of be cross both those worlds and didn't feel, you know, never felt alone. Sometimes wish I could have been more alone because, you know, it's a small town. But I, and I spent a lot of time in the woods, was fearless in the woods, would go by myself. Sounds really lovely, actually. It was, it really was. And it was that weird, sweet spot right after World War II where the veterans had come home. This was their families. I was born in 50. And um, it, the town worked as a town. They had a busy um, main street and two theaters, two movie theaters in this town of 4,000. Yeah. Two movie theaters. One had been an old vaudeville theater that had been trans, you know, trans into being a, a film theater. In talking to my friends that I have from that, from that time, we all kind of agree that it was like about as good as a childhood gets in the, some of the less savory aspects of childhood hadn't become mm -hmm. so oppressive, hadn't become so apparent. And I could stay up till 10 o'clock in the summer and my parents wouldn't worry about me. And you know, as long, and they, my mother would walk on the front porch and call my name and I'd come home. So I, I was, and I was a pretty good kid too. I, I wasn't destructive. I was much more making things than destroying them, mm -hmm. even though I did blow up a few things. It's <laughs> always good to do both. Oh well, gosh, you gotta, you gotta let loose, yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's not, you know, so many of those small towns have, haven't been doing this well, you know, like no, a lot of them have died. No, this one's not now. Walmart wiped out Main Street. Mm. The last time I was there, there were literally boarded up businesses on Main Street. And I had never, in real life, I had never seen really boarded up, like with boards just yeah. kind of indiscriminately nailed over the front of them. But there were boarded up businesses on the Main Street of this little town. And it really made me feel so sad that, you know, but you know, Walmart comes in and wipes out all the little businesses. Yeah. And that seems to be a plague, I think, on the... Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, it's really sad driving through America and... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and the last time I was there, they were building an even bigger Walmart. So, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm very... Um, I, I hold the Walton family accountable for a lot of people losing their dream businesses. Mm -hmm. Which is sad. So the, I looked it up on a map, but it, your town was like close to, kind of close to Raleigh, right? Well, not really. It was the, the closest city 
was Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, okay. And I would fly in when I would go down to visit. My parents were still alive. I'd fly into Norfolk, mm -hmm. and, and I had a taxi driver friend who would pick me up and drive me to a husky. And um, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, it, my, it was the flat area between the ocean and the mountains, mm -hmm. and it was really pretty. My dad's farm was lovely, so I spent time on the farm. You know, so I, I actually had quite a few different things happening. I'd go with my dad to the farm once, I don't know, once every few weeks, once a month, and, you know, chase the donkeys, not the donkeys, um, mules around, get a little slice of what that was like, which was very different, really different than my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was thinking it was near Raleigh, just because I, I know I know the mountains part of North Carolina. Sure. So once I, you know, on a map, I was like, oh, it's not n anywhere near where I know. So you know what, it's, I have family living in Albemarle, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. My brother and his family live there, and, and, and Charlotte, North Carolina. And so I go there. I was just in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, visiting my niece and her family. And it was, um, you know, I have a warm spot for North Carolina, even though they've sort of been politically so backward for quite a while now. You ended up going to university, art school in... R Richmond, Virginia. Virginia Commonwealth University. They had an illustration department. Actually, it was a fashion illustration department. So I had to study that too, but it was really more general illustration that I was interested in. It was fun. I had family. I had been born in Richmond mm -hmm. and grown up in North Carolina. But I was born in Richmond, so I had uncles and aunts and cousins there. and. I would go to their house for meals and when I was in college. I mean, it really, it was lovely. And my parents, I think, were less concerned about my welfare because they, I was in town in the same city with a bunch of family mm -hmm. who, if I got into real trouble, which I never did, that they knew about, um, they could come to a rescue. And what did you like to draw at that point? Has it always been sort of the same subjects? Pretty much. It's really funny that. Um, I, uh, my early drawings are like Cinderella and, you know, pretty ladies and science fiction stuff and um, fairies and mermaids. I mean, a high, high um, fantasy quota mm -hmm. on this. It was really, I, if my parents had had a clue of how much in that world I lived, they might have been alarmed, but I was evidently covered that up pretty well. I mean, I really believed in fairies. I really believed in fairies. Did, were you a, like a voracious reader? Do you, were you reading? I loved reading. I still love reading. I mean, it's it's. I, I hadn't for a while, and I read a book recently, and I had forgotten the luxury of reading a book you love and how, and how you can just stop and then pick it up and resume that life inside the book immediately. Reading's a wonderful thing, and I, I, I wish people did more of it that wasn't on their phones. Mm -hmm. For sure. And were you also into movies? Like yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, very much so into movies. I would go to the movies in the theaters there, but we would see movies on TV, and when from pretty early on, I would let my parents go to sleep, go to bed and fall asleep, and I would get up, and go into the living room and turn on the TV because I knew the movies came on late at night and have the sound down really low and watch the late movies, mm -hmm. which there weren't that many, but I would watch whatever was there until one night I fell asleep on the floor and they found me there and it sort of, I was busted for a while. 
for that. But um, <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I loved movies. I, I don't, in fact, I know this to be true. I didn't know that they were fake when I was really little. I thought when somebody died in a movie, they really died. And I remember going into mourning over people dying in movies that my parents, it was so out there that nobody thought to say, Mel, this isn't real, this is all made up. You know, nobody ever, to my remembrance, bothered to explain that to me. So I remember Ricky and David Nelson from the Ozzie and Harriet show did a circus movie when I was a kid. And I believe David Nelson dies in it or something. I was inconsolable. I really like thought he was dead. And then, you know, you have things like Lucy and Ricky get divorced and they really got divorced, except it was Lucy and Desi. And so there were, no one, I guess the, the boundaries of what was fantasy and what was reality were very vague to me, so I just believed it all until somebody said that's not true, and then I'd, you know, I would decide if I thought that was true or not. I mean, it must, it must have been kind of confusing if you saw someone die in a thing in that movie and then saw them again. Well, exactly. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't go into the living room, um, like in my shorty pajamas because I thought they could see me on TV. I mean, I, you have to understand, TV was a very new thing yeah. then. We didn't get a TV till I was like four. Mm -hmm. So I had no knowledge of how it worked. And there were these people sitting there talking, you know, sophisticated people. And I could see them and I kind of figured they must be able to see me too. So the fact that there would be millions of people watching it really didn't occur to me at that age. But um, I, uh, yeah. It was confusing. And the funny thing was, I figured it out when I saw Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, and then a couple of weeks later saw her in Meet Me in St. Louis. No, Easter Parade. Mm. And she was different ages. And I'm like, oh, I see. And then I got it. But for the longest time, I really didn't know. I'm sure you weren't the only person. No, no, no. Because it I was know. so new that, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I know, I know kids who, you know, were positive they, that the people on TV could see them and were like, would put on bathrobes to go into the living room for fear of being, you know, seen in their, you know, pajamas or something. No, it was, it was a, I guess you could say it was a way more innocent time than now and kids were a lot less hooked up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was all new to everybody, frankly. How did university go? Did you enjoy it? Did you I did. I did. I, I, um, I sort of found myself there. You know, I, was, um, I, I started when I was 18. And I was very young looking 18. I looked like I was 15. And which had pros and cons. You know, looking like a child yeah. in a school of people with beards and stuff. I, I really did look very young. And... Um, I loved all the classes. Um, I loved having to draw every day. That was my job. I have to draw every day. I, have to. I didn't like um, typography. I was never good at that. But I still had to do it, so that's okay. Um, we would have nude models. That was wonderful, to have actual models in front of you, because I had never had that. Um, I started smoking weed when I was 19, and that was 
a, like a great thing. I mean, it's a very, for me, that happens to be a really creative thing. It's, it's my imagination gets sort of on steroids from that. I, again, I had friends, a lot of friends in college. I, I got to hang out with my favorite aunt, go to visit her, um, see some of my cousins. It, it really was a, a really good arrangement, and I love Richmond, Virginia. I still love it. Uh, I go back there every chance I get. Because it's a great place. It's a beautiful yeah. city, too. Really beautiful city, and, and I still have friends who live there, and I'm invited down there all the time. And I would really love to go, but it's sort of, I don't get a lot of time away from the city these days. And then after college, you moved to London? Is that yeah. Well, actually, no. I moved to Leeds, England. Oh. I went to, ah. I went to Leeds Polytechnic Institute of Art and Design in Leeds for a year graduate work after college. One of the teachers there was from Leeds, and I don't really know how I had the nerve to ask my parents if I could do that, but I did, and they said yes, which is, I'm, I'm embarrassed about to this day that I was so entitled that I felt like I could ask them for a year more college, mm -hmm. basically. But I did, and they let me. And um, that's where my work really started happening, when I was completely on my own, didn't have to be anybody for anybody else. I mean, like, I was always Bill Odom's boy growing up in this little town, and, and even Richmond was only like about 100 miles away from that town, so I was always sort of keeping that in the back of my mind, don't want to disgrace the family if you can avoid it. Well, in England, nobody's going to find out what I do unless I make real waves. So um, I was a lot more, I guess, experimental in my art. I went, they didn't like my drawings in Leeds. I had one teacher there who I'm still in touch with through Facebook, Martin Salisbury, uh, who liked my work. Everybody else thought it was just, you know, they just couldn't understand why I was there. But what, what I learned from that was to not care that they didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge thing, to realize that I, I don't really care if you don't like this. This is how I draw, and I think it's beautiful. And, was and your style already? was beginning there. Yeah. actually happened there. And then, when I, and then I would go to London on weekends, and I'd go to York on weekends. I loved England. Um, I felt really at home there. I felt like I had been there before. Mm -hmm. I really had that. Have you ever been someplace where you just have a strong sense that you belong there? Yeah. This was that for me. I can remember going, I mean, going completely by myself to another country. To a, I was the only American in the school and feeling at home in that alien environment. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved it. I really loved it. And I would have probably stayed, tried to stay in England if I hadn't missed my parents. And you know, you know the top, the clock's ticking for how long you're going to have your parents. Mm -hmm. And I just knew it would break their hearts if I stayed there. And so I came back and went back to Richmond, created a portfolio, and then came to New York for that weekend I told you about and showed it to my agent, Peggy Keating. It was it kind of worked really very efficiently. I didn't have a lot of time wasted trying things and failing. I, I, I knew that drawing had been my major voice 
since I was little. Yeah. And when you have something you can do that you can express your fantasies, your likes, your, you know, and, and it's you, that's a precious thing for a kid particularly because it's rare. It's rare, I think. And I knew that drawing would be what I could do by myself and, and it would have a wider audience. I had studied music, singing actually, in London. And I was really, I was discovered by a, a guy there, a, a voice teacher, Harold Stevens. I actually auditioned for some shows and stuff while I was there, but when I came back, I thought, well, I've been drawing since I was four. The singing thing, even though it was exciting and fun, I had only been doing, you know, for a year or two. So I just went back to what I loved and had loved for the longest. It seemed like it happened very fast. And I guess it did, because I already had a job, that one job I told you about for Viva, when I moved to New York. And then, fortunately, they kept hiring me. And then um, other skin magazines saw my work, and it was so distinctive, and managed to be erotic without being um, you know, pornographic. I, and then Blue Boy saw my work in Viva, and I started doing work for Blue Boy, which is a gay magazine out of Miami. And they had a really great art director who would let you do just anything you wanted as long as it was really beautiful. And you know, when somebody says, make something beautiful and we'll work a story around it. Yeah. So I was just, that was like, oh my gosh, that's like a present. So I, I started working for Blue Boy. Did some of my best work, early work for Blue Boy. I really did. I really, because I was also kind of discovering who I was sexually, you know, being this, you know, this gay kid. Well, actually, I wasn't a kid by then. I was 25, but I was a very young 25. I was discovering what I thought was beautiful about that, and I was putting it in drawings, and, and I was expressing stuff about myself that I never had in drawings before. So that was really um, hypnotic. You know, that was wonderful to be able to do that. And then Playboy saw my work, and... I started working for Playboy starting in 1979. I worked for them for 17 years. They were like my best gig ever. You know, they were wonderful to work for. And then Time Magazine saw my work in Playboy. And I got called into Time Magazine and I'm like, how is this happening? You know, I, I really had a real strong sense of it's just unfolding without my actually making it unfold. I guess I was, because I was doing the drawings, of But you course. weren't doing, like, cold pitch, no. cold calls and no, cold no, pitching? No, 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 no. I mean, and, and, and when I'm working in Blue Boy and Playboy gets in touch with me, I'm like, holy smoke, Playboy magazine, that's great. That's a big deal. And it paid, like, oh, gosh, many, 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 many times what all the other magazines paid. Mm -hmm. And then... Time Magazine, my gosh. And I, and I went in and I had this wonderful art director, a woman named Irene Ramp. And I'll never forget, I went in and she had like an Indian headband and a feather sticking up. And she was so zany. And I thought they were going to be like, 
we've called you in because we'd like you to work for us. But there were this crazy bunch of real creative people there. I did, the first thing I did for them was a portrait of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And um, then I did Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. You know, I, and I got all the villains, was the way I felt about it. And I actually asked them about that one time. I said, you know, I'm not liking any of the people you have me drawing. Why are you getting me for these particular? Can I draw like, I don't know, Debbie Reynolds or Marilyn Monroe or somebody? And they said that I made the villains human. And, and that was a compliment. That was a tremendous compliment. So um, I loved it. I loved it. And then the, the portrait I did of the Ayatollah wasn't used for a long time because they were waiting for him to die, basically. Because he was very old when I did the drawing. And um, it happened, I mean, years went by, and it wasn't used. And I went home, my father died. And I went home, this was in 88, and I went home to be with my mother a lot. Like I'd go every six weeks and I'd spend a week or two. And it happened when I was home after my father's death. And I, I, I had an answering machine back then and I called in. They had a message from Time Magazine said, I hope we're, we're using your Ayatollah cover and um, we wondered if you wanted us to use your name. And I was called them back and went, of course I want to use my name. Of course, I'm so excited. And what, that, what did I want them to use my name was about was that photographers who had taken unflattering pictures of him had been like shot. God. There was a lot of fear mm -hmm. that an unflattering image might solicit somebody not like him. Like a yeah, fatwa. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But I had made him look great. I thought he looked like a villain from like Arabian Nights or something. That's how, I mean, that's how knowledgeable and political I was, was that I, you know, he had this black turban on and robes and kind of amazing eyes and a long white, I mean, it was really, I was so excited to draw that because it really looked like a villain, you know. And, um, but when that happened and my drawing was on the cover of Time magazine, I was home with my mom and in this little town, that was really big news. And the, that was the best part of it, was that my mom was at a low point in her life. Her husband of 50 years had just died, and my father just died, and I was who I loved very much, and was a wonderful man, a great husband. Um, and she got the people coming to interview me at home, and the people in church congratulating her and shake her hands and stuff, and I would go to church with her. And I was so happy that it happened then. That if my father couldn't have seen it, mm -hmm. which would have been nice, um, at least it happened in such a way that she got to see all the hubbub about her son doing something like that. And um, so that was nice. That was really nice. I liked that a lot. And you know, and, th and this was years after having done the drawing. I don't even know how many years. I had a book published, two books published with that drawing in it oh, wow. of my drawings because I didn't think it was ever going to be used and they gave me permission from time to use it. So it was, um, but it was cool. I loved it. Did, 
What did your parents think of, did they see any of your other work how, when they were first starting out, the more erotic thing? Yes. The funny thing was, I was kind of oblivious to that. Mm -hmm. I found after my dad died, I was going through some stuff, and I found a drawing, uh, and I was just sending a copy of Playboy magazine with my drawing in it, because that's just the easiest way that it doesn't get messed up. And all of them had been ripped out of Playboy and stuffed in an envelope. And the things I did for Playboy really weren't, I mean, they were erotic, but they were beautiful drawings. I mean, because I, I, I would draw for Joyce Carol Oates and Tom Robbins. I mean, you know, really wonderful writers. And I, I took it seriously when there were wonderful writers involved, because you want people to read that. You want people to read that. I'm sure they cringed at a lot of my work, but I never thought to censor that mm -hmm. for them because I just, I don't know if I, I don't think I, pro I probably wouldn't have sent them, well, no, that's not true. I did. My first drawing in Viva had an erect penis in it, and I brought, the, I was so proud, it was my first drawing ever published, and I was already showing peen. I mean, you know, that's kind of remarkable when I think back on it. I didn't realize at the time that that was pretty nervy. And my, my mother looked at the drawing and pointed to his penis, and she went, is that part of the man? And I'm like, yeah, Mom, it's called the penis. You know, babies. I don't think my parents had ever seen each other naked when they weren't, in, had been together naked when they weren't in the dark. Wow. Yeah. I, I really believe that. In fact, I know that's true because of something my father said years later and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I was, it was such a, I, that, they had, my father's family had been Quaker, mm. the generation before my father. So I'm, I'm thinking this has got to be some Quaker, you know, yeah. over, you know, hang. And um, I was, I, but I was amazed by that. I really was. Asking me if that was a penis when it really did look like a penis, you know. So anyway, anyway um, so that was, but that being the first thing I did, I guess they were just shocked all the time now that I think about it. Did, had you done your original portfolio, did it have erotic work in it? Had you already, like, no, or did you not get, really. Did they just really. ask out of? No, it, it, it was mostly, I, did, I remember the work, it had, all my work always had an odd eroticism in the way it was drawn. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's how I would get assignments sometimes, because they say, you can draw this shoe so that it's really sexy. You know, and I was like, okay. And, um, but none of the drawings were, were specifically erotic at all. I mean, they were... Uh, several of them were actually just masks. And they were all that size. They were all like on, I think, 8 by 10. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought it would be easy to carry around a small portfolio. But they weren't really erotic subjects. They were just drawings of other things, flowers and stuff that were drawn erotically. Mm -hmm. if, yeah, if, if, you, if you get that distinction. Well, yeah, I mean, just the way that just Maplethorpe the, took photographs of flowers that are very erotic. Exactly. And George O'Keefe Painted. Exactly, oh. exactly. That's what it was. And truthfully, it could have just as easily been house and garden, and I would have been thrilled to do drawings of flowers mm -hmm. for them because I love flowers. Like, what's your process? Like, what do you use? What materials okay. do you use? Well, I, I draw on vellum sketches. Mm -hmm. 
and I work out the issues. And back, I'll tell you how it happened back then, how it worked. I would do, when I'd get an assignment, I would come home and I would do sketches. I'd read the manuscript if there was a manuscript. Yeah, I was going to wonder, like, did oh, you... Oh, yeah, did, I would always read, read the manuscript. The, the, the text of the article or oh, the, the I piece was, of a book I was, or whatever? I was so old school on that. I would read the article or the book mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it was, manuscript, and um, I would do sketches on vellum, which is very easy to erase on, so you, it's a really incredibly creative paper because you can erase. You can draw something really elaborately and then just erase it and it's completely gone. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I would work on vellum. I would probably do two or three ideas and then I would take it in they would discard, show the art director. This was when you were doing this, you would go there with a portfolio and you'd go into their office and show them things. I mean, it's, it's like no one does this anymore. And they would pick one, and then maybe I would do a more finished version of that one and come back and show it to them. And then um, I would tell them what the colors would be because the sketches would be in black and white. Then I would go home and do the drawing. Oh, and the drawing is on illustration board that I would, I would put lead on the back of the sketch or a photostat of the sketch and trace it. And the lead would then imprint the image on the illustration board. Fairly crude way to do it, frankly. But I could get all, and then I would just go back in and redraw it and I would then put, um, any place I wanted to remain white, I would put um, mascoid, which is a, a liquid that you can put on paper that will keep the color that you brush over it from soaking into those places. Like I'd, I'd have little dots on the lips, so I'd have highlights mm -hmm. on the lips, and if there were whites of the eyes, I would have that masked out. And then I'd put the color down, it, it was dyes, peerless dyes, and I would um, do that with brushes. Um, and then I would, after I got the color down, then I would draw over the pencil. I mean, over the dyes with pencil. Mm. And it was all lead pencil, it's not colored pencil. So it, it gave it a wonderful unity of tone so that I could put colors together that really shouldn't work. But because they all got that same gray tone over it, it made them somehow work. It was a real, was, I, I think it's a great technique and it's one that I still use sometimes, but. And you developed that yourself? Yeah, yeah. I developed it by what I didn't want my drawings to look like. And then it only leaves a certain number of things to do to, and I didn't want to use airbrush because it felt, something felt artificial and mechanical to me about that. But I wanted my drawings to look like airbrush. So I just develop, it's, it's layers and layers of very fine cross-hatching. And then you go in with a darker pencil, you know, deeper lead and defined area. And then, um, then you paint a gouache background around the figure. In fact, all my early drawings had black backgrounds because black was the only color I could get to go down flat. So everything had a black background. They all had this sort of, the ones in Viva, they all have black yeah. backgrounds because that I could accomplish. And it also gave it a distinctive, 
it, it accentuated the Art Deco part of the drawings. You know, this this very severe black background and these these you know beautifully colored figures on it. It was a, it was no one was drawing like that, and I just happened to be the one who was drawing like that. And um, it it's so funny. I went into an office one time with my portfolio, and I walked in, and they went, "You are not at." all who I was expecting to come in with your portfolio. He said, I thought you were an old Japanese man. <laughs> I'm like, and then I thought about Mel Odom. I, I guess you could wonder. And, and because when I came to New York, I was such a hick that people, with very sophisticated drawings, so people were like very highly entertained that I was the one who was doing these drawings because I was like, yes ma'am, and you know, standing up when a woman came into the room. All my southern manners paid off. It was like a really, really um, interesting thing. I, I, when I, I taught at SVA for three years, and I tried to tell everybody that I taught, I said, listen, I'm, I don't know if this even applies anymore, but my having really good old-fashioned manners got me in places that I would have never gotten in otherwise because I, you know, I've been brought up, you know, yes ma'am, yes sir, a very formal sort of etiquette, I guess. I had all that and I looked like I was like 18 and, and um, was pretty, actually pretty guileless. You know, I, 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 there was no calculation in any of this because it's just who I was and I didn't know how to be fake. And it worked. What was it like living in New York in the late 70s? Well, I loved it. I had never, you know, I, I came here in 75, October 15th. And um, I moved in with a girlfriend, as I said. We lived on the Upper East Side. And the very first Within the first two weeks of moving to New York, I met Erte, who was my idol, and got to talk with him, and give him a drawing, and he invited me to his opening. Fantastic. And I saw Greta Garbo, like, like three feet away, up close. So, all these people I had read about, and you know, imagined about, and, and kind of worshiped their various arts, were there. And you could just see them on the street. I was with my, the friend I had moved in with, Mary Ann, looking, walking around Madison Avenue. It had to be like probably the first Sunday I was in New York. Well, and she's showing me Madison Avenue. And I look and I see some Erte drawings in a window of a gallery. And I run across the street, look in the window, and there they are, and I'm looking at it. And then I look, and Erte's standing in the gallery. I mean, he was very distinctive. There wasn't any wondering if that was Erte, because he was this little bitty guy in this beautiful silk suit. And I was so dumbfounded. And I went in and sort of kind of stupefied, introduced myself to him, and he was charming. And, and I had, was working on a drawing at the time, because I drew all the time. And I gave him that drawing. He invited me, he gave me an invitation for the opening of the show that night. He was there helping them arrange the things on the walls. I brought this drawing and gave it to the proprietor of the gallery to give to him. Because I couldn't have done it. 
I could not have done it. You know, <laughs> you know, I would have been shaking. My knees would have been knocking. And I got a lovely thank you letter from him. And we became pen pals. So um, New York was like everything I wanted in one place. I got like that summer, um, 76, I met my first boyfriend who was this freakishly handsome Italian guy. And it was like, oh my God, how did I, why did I wait this long to come here? This is like magic. And um, I had a, a number of other friends. At one point on this block, four other people I went to college with lived on this block. So all the people who were in drama or art or film from Virginia Commonwealth University came to New York to find their way. And I stayed friends with them. So um, it was, it was a really amazing time for me and, and, and my other friends, I'm still friends with them. I mean, they, I still have like two, three girlfriends from college living within three blocks. Amazing. I know, I know. I had dinner with, with two of them last night. So it's, you know, I was lucky. I was really lucky. I, I acknowledge that. People always went, Mel, buy me a, buy me a, a, a raffle ticket because mm -hmm. I know it'll win because you're so lucky. And I, I never did that because I don't really believe in luck. I just believe in you kind of make your own reality. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what the series of interviews, <clears throat> I started doing them because, like, I mean, I think your story is actually much more linear than a lot of these people's. You decided and it actually happened, but... I think a certain amount of it is luck. Or oh, I mean, you, totally, you know, totally, like, totally, totally, totally. I, I, I would walk into it. I mean, looking in that window and seeing Erte yeah. could have been any window. Standing, looking in another window and Garbo's behind me could have been anybody other than me. And no, there, there was a lot of luck about it. There was a lot of... It felt like I had stepped into the right machine mm. to make my life happen. I felt the sense of something kind of clicking when I came here that I had found where I was supposed to be and things, the city embraced me in a way that um, reinforced that. I mean, and the, the, this job leading into that job and then the jobs getting better, you know, going mm -hmm. the better and better magazines. I was not a shrewd planner. I was sort of caught in this wondering how much farther was this going to go, you know. When I started working for Time, I was like, oh my gosh, if you had told me I'd be doing covers for Time magazine, I wouldn't have believed you. Well, it sounds like you made, you know, you started the, that Yes. You know, going by like making the decision to go to England, then making a decision to come to New York and cold call the agent, and then moving to New York with just that. You know, I think that's started the ball rolling. I've always been proactive in my future. I, I, um, I feel like if you're just sitting there waiting for it to happen to you, it's probably not going to happen. So there's got to be a, a part of it has to be your aggression mm -hmm. and you're projecting yourself into um, where you want to be and what you want to be. Um, I, because I, 
started doing masks when I moved to New York. There was an air, a ball in honor of Erte, and I was invited to go to it. And I was, went with a friend and three models dressed in these beautiful costumes, and I made masks that they were carrying on sticks. Well, I based the faces of the masks on Erte's drawings of women, you know, how he drew his fashion. And that night, I mean, it was like Grace Jones, you know, and, and people I knew from film and TV and all this, and it was celebrating somebody who had been my idol for like years. So I just kept thinking, please don't let me wake up if I'm dreaming this, don't let me wake up yet. I do not want to go back to Kansas. And um, I guess I never did because, I mean, when, I mean, things got rough when the, when the whole AIDS thing started happening. That beautiful Italian man that I met died of AIDS, mm -hmm. the first person I knew to. So in a way, I got that, the worst of that over with right up front. There was a lot of challenge in that. But the thing I had control over was my work. And I felt like nothing else I had any control over. And truthfully, for years I thought I would be next because he and I had been together for seven years when he died. And this was before the term safe sex had even been created. Mm -hmm. So I knew by everything science said, I would be next. I would, or not next, but I would be soon. And, but my drawings became very precise and very um, kind of spiritual during that period because I was trying so hard to focus on what I could control because I knew there wasn't much that I could control. My work I could control. And it, it saved me. It saved me as a focus. It gave me something to get up and do that was not despair. It's, I, you know, I, 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 I was genuinely saved by my work during that period. I, and I, I, as it turned out, years later I found out I have a, an HIV resistant gene. Oh, I didn't even know there was one. There is one. It's called Delta 32 mutation. Mm. And I had it. I have it. I did not know that for years and had wondered why I wasn't getting sick like my friends around me. And that's like to live with that sort of uncertainty and fear. Fear is the word. Yeah. I saw, um, they, did a, they did a live presentation of Rent on TV like a year ago. And the leading man had broken his ankle the night before in, during a dress rehearsal, had literally broken his ankle. And I wasn't going to watch, I had seen it on stage and it had been very emotional and weeping, you know, to tears and stuff. And I just really was, but I did want to see how they covered for their leading man having a broken ankle. So I tuned in to watch it. And like 10 minutes into the show, I just started bawling my eyes out because it reminded me of the fear that I had lived with on a daily basis. And not just, I mean, I say I lived with, everybody lived with. And um, I had really, time is an amazing thing. I had blocked the memory of how afraid I had been for all those years. And during that period of two thirds of my friends died. My next boyfriend after that died. I felt like I was sort of in 
a private war where bombs were going off and bodies were laying all around but nobody could see it. It was a really unique time to live in, and New York was the epicenter of that. But I had friends who loved me, I had parents who supported me, I don't mean financially, yeah. but loved me, um, and I had my work which became so important for all the reasons I've told you, that it was my focus on control and beauty. I was trying to make something beautiful out of something that was terrifying. And um, I see those drawings from that period, and I think it's there in the drawings. They're very immediate looking. They look like they're very much in that moment, like there's no past or necessarily future. It's all in that moment. And I think that's because that was how I felt at that time. So this is like the mid-80s? Like well, it started in 83. Um, my boyfriend, Rhett, died. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even age yet. Yeah, they it called it gay, ARC, gay cancer, gay ARC, something like that. I was 33 when he died. And I was completely over my head emotionally. And I had never expected that at that age I would be, you know, burying my friends, going watching my friends waste away in hospitals. I checked him out of the hospital to go back to his family in Ohio. You know, I, 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 just, I was doing things that I could, I did because I was in such shock. That you, you know, you can do things when you're in shock that emotionally you're not necessarily all connected to. So I was doing these things, but my work was the constant. It was like the thing, that's, it literally was the thing that saved me. And I know I keep saying that, but do, particularly during this period of, you know, so many deaths and so much goodbye. I, I, and, and for a long time, I thought I would be going soon, so when I would finish a drawing, I would think, okay, that's another one I've done. That's another thing that'll go down on my permanent record. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I have accomplished this, and I, I tried to do as much as I could because I didn't know how much long I had to do anything. So it was, a, it was I wouldn't go through it again for anything, but having gone through it and survived, I'm, I, I feel like has made me a much stronger person because, first of all, I got the golden ticket. I got the, you have a gene that you inherited from one of your parents that protects you from HIV. That's not given to many people. And the reason they found out, they think, is because someone in my distant family's past survived the bubonic plague. How's that for sci-fi? Isn't that, isn't that like... That's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It's totally crazy. So I had a doctor friend. When, um, when I first got tested for you know, HIV, when you go to the doctor, and it was negative, I burst into tears and I started yelling at my doctor that he was lying to me. That, that that's impossible. You, you're wrong. You're lying. You think I can't take it? I actually said that. It's really dramatic. And um, he went, no. And he handed me the chart. He said, look, you're negative. And I said, well, they need to have my blood on the slide then. And uh, a few years later, another doctor friend of mine that I had said the same thing to 
said, okay, there's a, there's a study going on in New York, in your city, at the Aaron Diamond Center for AIDS Research. Go there. Be a part of it. It's exactly for what you said to me. People who know they've been exposed to HIV but have not contracted it. You need to go. And I did. I was the last person in the study. Yeah, it was amazing. I called the number he gave me. They said, if you can be down here by 2 o'clock this afternoon, you can be in the study. Today's the cutoff day. Yeah. So I like ran down there in my painting stuff. I was all, you know, artistic looking when I got there. <laughs> and, and, and sure enough, I got a letter a few months later, a few weeks later, saying, yes, you have this gene. So, okay. If, I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets. On my worst days, I remind myself of that. Like, get over whatever's bothering you. You would have been gone decades before if you hadn't been given this tremendous gift of this gene. And when my doll Jean came out, it just got even more layers of stuff going on. I mean, it was quite remarkable. Did it give you this like appreciation of like the moment? And... Oh yes, oh yes. I um. Yes. I. When I'm going through something good or bad. I always want to remember that moment because I want, I want the ownership of that memory. I have led a very unique life. I've been given a lot. I, I know, I mean, I, I was given the drive, I was given some talent, I was given, you know, loving parents, healthy body, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't take, I try to not take anything for granted because I, when you're giving so much, you have to acknowledge that you have and, and say thank you and hope and keep doing stuff. I mean, it's one of the reasons I still work all the time. I mean, I, I want to use what I have as long as I can. And it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a, actually, I think it's a pretty realistic way to live because having seen so much of other people dying, you really do appreciate that you're alive. I mean, yesterday was my 69th birthday. And I just thought, how great is this? Because I'm doing new things, I'm healthy, I've got a great husband. I just thought, you know, if you had told me at 35 you'd live to be 69, I'd have thought, oh, I don't know if I want to be 69, that's like old and decrepit. No, it's not. It's really not. Not unless you, well, not for me. I'm sure it is for some people, and I, and, I, and I don't want to diminish that. But I've been blessed, and, you know, and I go to the gym, and I eat well, and I go to the doc, my doctor. You know, I, I, I try to maintain all that, because it's such a luxury. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's, I mean, so obviously some people have health issues that are beyond their control, but a lot of it is a decision to be active. Absolutely. And to not think of yourself as old. Absolutely, absolutely. I um, I went to the gym this morning. I, I just got over a cold, and, and it felt so good to do that again, and I felt so great to be able to do that. And, and um, you know, I, I, it's... When you live through a battle, 
which in a way the AIDS thing was a real war when so many people died. You are so grateful for the peace times when you're not going through that and your friends are healthy. And, um, you know, my parents are gone now, but um, I have family that I love and my husband and I have been together 26 years. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't give anything for this because um, you, you know, I know it's, I know it's a, a privilege. I know I've been very privileged and I try not to take that for granted. You mentioned Jean, yes. the doll. How did that come about? How did you decide to make your own doll? Okay, um, this is actually, this ties in with what I've already been talking about. Um, my best friend was a designer, not a boyfriend, my best buddy was a designer named Brian Scott Carr. I'd always loved dolls since I was a kid. A fashion, I had dolls. He was a fashion designer? Excuse, was yes. he a fashion designer? Yes, he was a fashion designer. Made a lot of my clothes. Was my, we moved to New York at the same time and a month apart, he got sick with HIV. And by that time, this was in the, like, 90 or so. By that time, I had already um, lost a lot of people. So I knew what was coming, and his family was in the Midwest, and he wasn't, like so many situations, at that time, they were not communicating because of his being gay. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to have to be the daddy in this situation. That he, I, I recognized that he was getting ill and I actually said, you should see your doctor and, and called his doctor and said, you should call Brian and talk to him for a few minutes and call me back. And he called me back and said, get him to the hospital tomorrow. And we did that. I recognized some of the symptoms. He was suffering from dementia already. And um, I thought, I have to do something really detail-intensive and really different so that I don't just fall into despair over my best friends dying. And I decided I was going to design a doll. I had worked with a friend on a doll he had designed, and that had made me think, I wonder if I, if I could do that. And um, so, really and truly, I did this more or less as therapy. I thought, I really need something different to be focused on. And then, his hospital turned out to be three blocks from the sculptor's studio that I worked with to sculpt Jean. And I, when I realized that these, this was like on 16th Street, it was Beth Israel Hospital, mm -hmm. and it was three blocks from where the sculptor had, his, my, had the stu his studio. And I'd go to the hospital, it was invariably grim, and then I'd walk the three blocks to Michael Everett's studio. I'd go up, he knew the story, what I, where I was coming from, and I'd be in a funk, and down and we would work on this beautiful little being, you know. His wife was very pregnant at that time and they couldn't have relations at that point. So he told me all his horniness was going into my doll. 
So I would come to I would come to the studio, and she'd have the most beautiful breasts, like perfectly proportioned sculpt. She'd have the gorgeous muscles in her back and a beautiful butt, and I just was like, boy, did I luck out, <laughs> getting this guy's horniness poured into this. So and 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 he was a very sweet, still is a very sweet, sensitive guy, and he understood my predicament in coming from the hospital and working with him. So, um, and I really didn't know if it would go any farther than his studio, but I didn't even care because it was giving me something unique to look forward to, to work on, to obsess about, to try to, you know, put myself into. And, um, and then I, during that period, I had a, I, when I was trying to, to do this, make this doll, I met a guy who photographed me for a magazine and a photographer named Gene Bagnato. And he and I became, started seeing each other. And I, after a couple of years into our being together, we, I found out he had HIV as well. So, it, we had just, we had been jokingly calling the doll Little Jean. Like, I'm going to go work on Little Jean now. And then when I realized he had HIV, I thought, I think I really will name this doll Jean because it might not, it might be what we haven't, what we can share. Mm -hmm. It might not be much longer that I'll actually be with him. So I named the doll Jean after him was able to get the trademark on Gene. Gene Tierney really is my favorite movie star. So it was like, I could tell people, oh, it's because I love Gene Tierney. And, you know, I didn't, because you don't want to bum everybody out. Yeah. It, was a, it was a very exciting time. And I got an agent. No, I got a lawyer who got me another lawyer who got me an agent. And we showed Gene around the prototypes to companies and after about a year and a half, we found a company and they signed. They signed a contract to actually do this. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is really going to happen now. And everywhere I showed it, even if they didn't go for it, because we showed it many times before we found this company, they said that my passion for it had been why they were interested in it because I was, I loved it so much. And I, because it, it had all this content that they didn't even need to know about. And I loved movies, it was where my love of all these old movies came in, and my love of movie stars, and, and vintage fashion, and um, it was like the perfect thing for me. One of my girlfriends, who lives a couple of blocks from here, the one since college, offered to max out her credit card to help me get Jean going. I didn't take her up on yeah. it, but she offered. And that was like huge, you know, somebody believing you. My parents, my father had um, died by then, but my mother thought it was, loved the idea. And, and then when it happened, you know, I'd go home and give all her girlfriends dolls. And, you know, it was, I, I got to be, you know, you know, the cool son again. So, um, and then it just, it became within a year well, actually, within a few weeks, it became second only to Barbie on the internet 
which was just beginning to happen then. And I didn't even have a computer, and I didn't even know exactly what the internet was, frankly. But people, I had a friend who would bring pages of the messages that he had printed out. He says, listen, people are talking about this doll. And I'm like, cool, you know, what do I do? How do I, how do, I do that? So this friend of mine started a little gene zine, a little, you know, published in his basement, and that got lots of hits and lots of people ordered it. And um, I would show up anywhere they wanted me to go. I'd go to a dog fight if I could show Gene. And, and I went to local doll sh shows and showed her. And, um, and gradually, not even gradually, very quickly, it became second only to Barbie as for sales. I got to go all around the country and meet people. And I was fearless. I mean, I, I didn't know enough to be nervous about going on TV and stuff. So I would go QVC and, and you know, radio, TV shows and stuff. And, and I was also, one thing Mattel, who has Barbie, doesn't have is a, a real person mm -hmm. to speak for her. I mean, there are lots of nice people there, I'm sure, but they don't have a spokesperson who doesn't seem a bit canned. Yeah. I was this blabbermouth, you know, artist who had worked for Playboy and you know, all these magazines and had sort of an iffy background who, who had made this doll that you know, was, very, was happening and the clothes were beautiful. I mean, I, 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 I was very into the clothes. I, I would record scenes for movies and give them to my designer friends and say, that's the dress I want. Mm -hmm. And I would have recorded it so they could see it in motion and see the back and sides, you know. So um, it became so much that I stopped illustrating because I was going, doing appearances like 20 weekends out of the year, all around the country, out of the country, Paris, England, you know. So um, it just sort of blew up in my face in the best possible way. And it's still, there's, like I was with a company, we had a, a, a new company for me called Jamie Show, and they did Gene for like five years, and I just got to the point where I just really thought I had done what I needed to do, and I wanted her to retire and move to Italy and have a wonderful life. You know, mm -hmm. that was the life I always envisioned for. And who doesn't like Italy? Yeah. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want that for their, their retirement? So it made more money for me than I ever made from illustration, lots more money. Got me all over the place, different states, different countries. Made a lot of friends, a lot, a lot of friends. People would come up to me and say, this doll looks like my mother when she was dating my father, or I used to wear clothes like these when I was young. And it, and it touched people in a way I really hadn't foreseen. I thought everybody would think of her as their favorite movie star. Mm -hmm. I did that. But I didn't realize that people would say, oh, this looks just like my mother. You know, I'm grieving, I'm mourning my mother died last year and I'm buying Jean because she, I feel her in these dolls. I, I, I see her. And I'm a big wuss. And you know, people would tell me things like that and I would get all teary. I mean, really, like, because I, I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see how much people would connect with her coming. It was a, you know, a, a wonderful, wonderful period of my life. Not easy, 
not easy. Business is not easy. I was so not a business person. I have a great lawyer, lives two blocks from here, found out. After a year of going to his office on Madison Avenue, he asked me to bring something to his house, some papers, and I found out he was living two blocks from me. You know, so it was like, again, a lot of very good fortune. And, um, and I think Jean's beautiful, and I think she changed a lot of things in the doll. I know she changed a lot of things in the doll world. And she got voted a number of years ago as the most influential doll since Barbie. And I'll take it. Yeah, that's. I'll take it. That's, that's as high a compliment. Raise, yeah. yeah, that's the highest compliment you can get. And it was a lot of fun. And I, my one guilt is that my carbon imprint on the, of all the vinyl. <laughs> that I, I do have that to answer for, so I'm sure <laughs> that, that, that'll be on my quiz when I get through the pearly gates. Are you aware of that? <laughs> but um, but um, I think a lot of people loved Jean yeah, and still do. Yeah, so many people. Yeah, that was, I mean, we'd have conventions, there'd be like 500 people in this room who loved me for Jean, you know, and, and I would just be like, I would actually have to sort of step back and go be by myself a little bit sometimes because it would be so, such an unexpected Valentine I would be being given that I, 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 my husband, Charlie, we met right at the very beginning of Jean. On our second date, I told him about her. And he said, you don't have to try to impress me so much. And I went, I, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm warning you. This is going to happen. This doll's going to happen. So he got to see it all happen and be with me. And his being with me made it so much easier because I was in alien territory all the time. I'd been in, working in my studio by myself for hours and quiet and weeks on drawings and stuff. And suddenly I'm speaking in rooms full of people. And I had him there, Charlie Saputo, like holding, you know, not literally holding my hand, but like holding my hand and filming it and thinking it was cool and being someone that afterwards I could go, was that crazy or what? And he would go, yeah, that was pretty crazy, Mel. That was exciting. So, you know, it's been great. It's been really great. I, I, again, I, I've, been, I've been way lucky. Way lucky. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of amazing sort of turn from yeah. illustration and then to have such incredible success with it. I know, I know. It was really... People would ask me, did you think this doll was ever going to be this much a success? And I'd go, yeah. That's how I could spend so much time working on it. Because I knew that I, when I first thought of the idea, I'm going to make my doll a movie star. And all the different dolls are going to be different roles that she played and different you know, costumes she wore and stuff. And I thought, why has nobody done this? It's like the easiest, most out there idea I could think of, but nobody had thought of it. And I was like, okay, I've got to do this. And the minute I thought of it, I was positive somebody else had thought of it. And so I was doing everything as fast as I could to beat whoever else had that idea. And I, well, there was no other person. I was sort of racing myself. But that sense of urgency to get it out there. Because I called around stores, you know, do you have a movie star doll? And I go, what? Click, you know, I was just sort of did, I was doing marketing research before I even knew the term. Mm -hmm because I wanted to know if anyone was doing a doll like that, and nobody was. And then Jean 
you know, was on dozens of magazine covers and, you know, sold a mi more than a million ten years in. And, you know, so it was cool. It was very cool. And I still have a bunch of the money. I also have the, the sense of accomplishment that I had something I had loved since childhood dolls, that I had made a difference in that, something that had mattered to me so much as a little kid that I had, and I, and a number of times I had families who had little boys who wanted Jean, and they would be sort of, kind of, I don't, you know, wondering what to do, and I'd say, listen, I have to tell you, I was, when I was a little boy, I played with dolls. And jeans made me the most money of anything I've ever made in my life. So it worked out pretty good for me. And I could see some degree of ease mm -hmm. in those parents' faces that, okay. And I would get, you know, and then I'd give the kid an extra outfit or something and sign it to, you know. I mean, I got to do a lot of stuff that I know would have mattered to me if somebody had done that for me when I was a kid. That was really rich really rich having that and um, I had one little boy do a, a report on me for his school you know and send me a pottery he had made for me for Christmas with Jean on it I mean yeah so it was some some really sweet things mm -hmm. some sweet payback for doing Jean happened and continues to happen and um, so it's, it's been, it's been uh, like again, never, if you had told me in advance, I wouldn't have believed you. But you just take it one step at a time and do what you can in that step. And you get places you can't believe. I wish she'd come out when I was, you know, young, a bit younger, because I would have been all over her. I mean, I was a huge Barbie fan, but because that's what was available. Sure, I was too. But, I had a Barbie. Yeah, I, but her, the jeans, so beautiful, and the clothes. Oh my I God. Been... I, I, the first time I got one in my hands that was manufactured in plastic, had jointed arms and legs, had, I, I, I ran around, the, three of the designers who did the first costumes for Jean, all three lived on 82nd Street, West 82nd mm -hmm. Street. So I was like running up and down that street, showing it to everybody, and like just like so elated and so happy about it, and and you know, but I'm a perfectionist too, so I always wanted it. I always wanted it better. I always wanted it this lip color, different. You know, I always I never I was never able to like rest on my laurels over it because I knew it could be better, and I wanted it to be and. Um, but it, it, and then, like, the whole thing with, when I found out in 96 about my having this gene, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I would go to Toy Fair and talk about gene all day. And there would be this subtext I would be experiencing of knowing I was alive because of a gene, and that my boyfriend, Gene, was in the hospital. It was like such, uh, I remember one day sitting in the taxi going from St. Vincent to the Javits Center. And I remember being kind, and he was in the hospital and very ill. 
just thinking, this is like a Betty Davis movie by way of the Twilight Zone. Just the oddest, and the name Gene being what had saved me, and then what was saved, you know, I mean, it had so many layers of meaning for me, that whole period that um, I would just be, you know, I would just be overwhelmed and just go into a bathroom and like just cry. Not necessarily because I was unhappy, but I was just so emotional from all this stuff happening at once and so aware of it. I wish I could have been less aware of it at times. Almost, mm -hmm. I wish that. Almost, I wish that. But I wasn't. I couldn't be. It really was a very, very rich time for me. Very emotionally rich. Such a sense of, again, my life, the cogs in my life, connecting in ways that I wouldn't see and then all of a sudden they'd all be there together. It's really quite a remarkable time. It was um, rich, just rich is the word I think and I don't mean money, just so, um, so I would be so full of emotion, these different emotions, saying goodbye to Jean Bagnato saying hello to this doll that's suddenly making my, changing my life from being a solitary illustrator sitting alone in a room to standing in front of hundreds of people and shaking thousands of hands at the Javits Center and talking about Jean. Oh my God, you can imagine. It was great, it was yeah. great, and it was challenging, and it was so much, just so much. Yeah. And once once Jean retired and moved to Italy, what did what did you then focus your? Well, I've been painting, and I had a gallery show, last this past January February in a lovely gallery here, Daniel Cooney Fine Art. I got an incredible rave in Art Forum, and a lot of the drawings, most of the drawings in this show, were from my illustration career. Mm -hmm. And all those things I was talking to you about earlier, all those things that I felt I was putting in my drawings, people see those. People read those. I was amazed at how much of what I was feeling came out to other people in those drawings. And it was, because it, it, they, they happened, the earliest one was like 76 maybe, maybe a little later than that. And they went through that period of AIDS and the period when I thought I was going to die any day and watching people do that any day. And they have that as part of their content. Mm -hmm. Whether, if I've never tried to do it, it has that content because it was coming from me and I was so much all that control yeah. that I was using in those drawings have, has an energy. And that energy is understood by other people in a way I hadn't seen coming. And so I'm doing new drawings towards another show. I'm, um, you know, it's sort of like my third act. And the other two were so kind of successful beyond my wildest you know, projections, though I guess not Jean, I always thought she'd be huge, that I, I, I just keep going, 
I mean, and I, I find that once you've had some kind of success, what you did for that success kind of gives you a, a pattern of how you live your life and how you, you know, you, you stay in the moment, but you're always hoping for the best in the future. Um, and having it fairly often. So it's cool. It's really cool. I, I, I don't, I can't think of anybody I would change lives with. I would love to have all the people who died still around, still friends. I would change that if I could. But obviously no one can, and I certainly can't. And so what I did take was my love for these people and my love of beauty and my own personal way of depicting that and made something out of it that maybe has a shelf life. And that's lovely. That's really lovely. Yeah. Like just listening to everything, it's just like, how lucky are you that you're still creating and yeah. people are yeah. coming to see oh, you. I totally agree. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I kind of kick myself sometimes. It's like, who the hell do you think you are? You, 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 just, you just won't stop. And, and I think maybe because of what happened during that period in the 80s, I don't think I can stop. I think I have that sense of time's flight in that I saw that with so many people, their lives in. I, I have a sense of, I have a lot of stuff I feel like I still want to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, um, it's both a challenge and a privilege. And um, I, I know that word keeps coming up, but it's the truth. Um, and I want to do I want to do another book of my work. I want a lot of things I want to do. I have a show in Sarasota, Florida, next this coming September. You know, I I was just offered a show in London. You know, so it's some pretty cool stuff going on. And I think that's one of the reasons I've taken such good care of myself is because I want to be able to do all that. Mm-hmm. I want to have the legs and the arms and the eyes to do all that, and um, so far so good. And if a meteorite came through this window and squashed me right now, I would have still had a great life. And and I always think of that, always think of that. Don't count on it, but plan on it. What are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of holding on to myself during all of this because a lot of people lose themselves in drugs and whatever. I felt like if I did that, I would not only lose myself, but I'd lose what I had to, to give. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm proud of the number of people who have loved me all those people with Gene, all those people who loved my art. I mean, that, that I gave good things to so many people. I guess that's it. That's it, that I was able to share what I loved with so many people, and people I'll never meet, people who, you know, I, I will probably never know of, but I get things all the time from, you know, Facebook's amazing for that you know, and Instagram and stuff, and people, just today, oh, I had this book of yours, 
since the 80s, and every time I get really depressed, I look at it, and it reminds me of how beautiful things can, you know, that, I, I'm very proud of that, and, and I, I think I've, I've also managed to do all this and be a nice guy, and that's good. Mm -hmm. I'm real happy about that, because I think if you have to be a shit, you'll lose a lot of your appeal for me. I know that, for a fact. I've met a couple people that I really admire their talent, and then when I met them, they were kind of awful, and I was like, oh, that's sad. But, um, so I try to be as cognizant of people's feelings and, and um, what meeting Erte and his being charming and nice to me, how that mattered to me, mm -hmm. and still does. I mean, like, I'm carrying that inside me, that excitement and that belief Oh my God! Things like this really happen, you know. So I, I, I that I think I, I think that I did so much good stuff, and I managed to be a nice guy, doing it, and with a minimum of of enemies. I hope <laughs> I'd like to think anyway. It sounds like me. Thank you. Seriously. We'll see. We'll see. I've been surprised at some once once or twice in that respect to the negative, but um. You know, I, I, I had really good parents. And there was something I read years ago, and I remember recognizing the truth of it. That, and it said, New York City is filled with 60-year-old men who've been trying to win their love of their fathers who've been dead for 20 years. Mm. And I had the love of my father and my mom and my family and I think that gives you stuff that there's no replacement for. And if you miss out on that, you spend the rest of your life trying to fill those vacancies. And I was blessed. I was blessed with a really good family. And, and that made me have a stronger sense of my worth and my place in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe the truth. I think so. I think so. That makes sense. Yeah. Does to me. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been fun. I, I, you know, thank you. Thank you for giving me this platform to just blab. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Mel Odom. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with makeup artists, porn stars, photographers, and many more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.